Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, everyone. This is Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, January 24th. As always, we'll start with the local weather. Today is going to be a foggy day with a wintry mix in the morning. Highs will be 41 degrees. Tonight, we'll see some occasional late-night rain and drizzle, with lows around 39 degrees. The sun rose this morning at 7.01 a.m. and will set tonight at 4.46 p.m. Tomorrow, Thursday, January 25th, will be a cloudy day with some rain in the afternoon. The highs will be 50 degrees, the lows 42 degrees. On Friday, January 26th, it will be a rainy day with highs in the 50s, lows in around 37 degrees. Saturday, will be a partly cloudy day. There will be some low clouds with highs at 42 degrees and lows 34 degrees. And on Sunday, again, we will see periods of rain. Highs 44 degrees and lows 32 degrees. And next, in other local news, we will go to the lottery numbers. We'll start with the numbers game for yesterday, Tuesday, January 23rd. The numbers at the midday drawing were 6499. Again, that's 6499. The evening drawing for yesterday, Tuesday, January 23rd, numbers were 0476. I'll repeat that, 0476. Mega Millions numbers for yesterday, Tuesday, January 23rd, were 21, 28, 58, 69, 70, the bonus ball of 20. The mass cash numbers for yesterday, January 23rd, were 9, 20, 32, 33, 35. And finally, the lucky for life numbers for yesterday, January 23rd. They were 5, 8, 11, 38, 40, with a lucky ball of 1. If you were the one, one of the ones that played, we wish you the best of luck. And next, we'll start with today's front page story on the, in the Cape Cod Times. The first story is entitled, Vibrant Social Scene. Barnstable named Country's Happiest Place to Retire by Jeanette Hinkle, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. 
Kathy Strudwick keeps a detailed calendar. Only a few weeks into 2024, the Barnstable Retirees Days are already booked up through March. I participate in an awful lot of things, Strudwick said by phone last week. Strudwick picks the films shown at the movie nights hosted by her 55-plus community. She volunteers, including at the Barnstable Police Station, where she helps front desk visitors with, quote, the good, the bad, and the ugly, end quote. She's in two travel clubs and the Hyannis Yacht Club, where she likes to attend trivia nights. She's a frequent visitor to the town's libraries, the area's cinemas, Cape Symphony, and Katuit Center for the Arts. She's a member of Barnstable's Council on Aging and one of the Barnstable Adult Community Center's biggest fans. The activities that have filled Strudwick's calendar since she moved to Barnstable two decades ago are a good window into the social scene that set the town apart in a recent study of data from more than 200 cities that named Barnstable as the country's happiest place to retire. The study, conducted by the finance company SoFi, used local data points ranging from temperature to cost of living to calculate how cities ranked in metrics meant to explore communities' social networks, financials, and health. Beating out Naples, Florida, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Barnstable came out on top, beating out second-place finisher Naples, Florida, and Ann Arbor, Michigan, which took the third spot in SoFi's study. Other highlights from the top ten list were Boulder, Colorado, at number five, San Jose, California, number eight, and Madison, Wisconsin, number ten. Laredo, Texas, came in last place, a ranking that forlorn country singers have long consigned. Kendall Mead, a certified financial planner at SoFi, told the Times in a statement that Barnstable stood out as a community-centric destination. As one of the largest communities on Cape Cod, it offers an abundance of entertainment and activities, creating a vibrant social scene, Mead said. The community's high community well-being score, coupled with a significant 65-plus demographic and low poverty levels, establishes Barnstable as a hub of financial stability and support for retirees, crucial elements for happiness. Barnstable's ranking, Mead said, solidifies its status as an idyllic retirement destination on Cape Cod 
and the happiest place for retirees to live in the United States. Barnstable's score was boosted by its high percentage of 65 and older residents, as well as the abundance of arts, recreation, and entertainment businesses. If Barnstable wanted to improve its SoFi happiness score, it could reduce cost of living and increase walkability by adding more public transportation. Much of what makes Barnstable special wasn't included in the study. Seven libraries, wood carving, and more. Public amenities like the town's seven libraries, which host regular events and talks that often make it into Strudwick's calendar, are gravy on top. Strudwick encouraged those who haven't yet dipped a toe into Barnstable's social scene to tap into the wellspring of community groups here. She recommended the Barnstable Newcomers Club. Another good place to start is the Barnstable Adult Community Center, which offers art, cooking, technology, and language classes, as well as a range of clubs, workshops, events, and programs. Want to try wood carving? Call the center. Director Kelly Howley said the center, run by seven full-time and two part-time staff members in addition to a roster of volunteers, is always looking to implement new ideas that will help Barnstable's community maintain strong ties. Barnstable is unique, and there are a lot of forward-thinking people that put all these things into place. And I think that's why people are so happy here, because there's so many things to do, Howley said, and it's just growing. And there are two pictures that go along with this story. The first is of Kelly, Kathy Strudwick, excuse me, and the caption reads, Volunteer Kathy Strudwick at the Barnstable Police Headquarters in Hyannis, where she volunteers staffing the front desk. Barnstable has been named the country's happiest place to retire in a study conducted by finance company SoFi. A vibrant social scene, high percentage of people aged 65 and older, and low poverty rate earned the Cape Cod Time, excuse me, Cape Cod Town its title. The second picture is also of Kathy Strudwick on a stage. The caption reads, Barnstable resident Kathy Strudwick spreads sunshine in 2021 at the 5th Annual Barnstable Unity Day Celebration on the, the Hyannis Village Green. And next we'll go to another local story on the Cape and Islands page. That story is entitled, Changes at Duck Harbor Give Rare Insight, by Eric Williams, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network.
The scene at Duck Harbor in Wellfleet has changed dramatically in a short stretch of time. For the past three years or so, robust high tides have been washing inland, transforming the landscape. These repeated overwashers are unusual. Normally, with overwash events, the breach is healed by sand washing in, said Katie Castagno, director of the Land-Sea Interaction Program at the Center for Coastal Studies in a phone interview. That's not happening at Duck Harbor. The continuing Duck Harbor dynamic presents quote, a golden opportunity to get data to study the effect of overwashes on coastal vegetation. Mark Borelli, director of the Seafloor Mapping Program at the Center for Coastal Studies, said in a release from the center, It's like watching a landslide in slow motion. We get to slow down nature and watch it happen. Scientists from the Center for Coastal Studies and the Cape Cod National Seashore continue to monitor the changes at Duck Harbor. Over the summer, Castagno and her team began assembling a valuable data set taking more than 200 sediment cores, according to the Center for Coastal Studies. The Duck Harbor research may provide valuable insights that can be applied in marsh restoration projects elsewhere, according to the Center for Coastal Studies, including the project currently underway at the Herring River in Wellfleet. Castagno called the changes at Duck Harbor, quote, geology in action, end quote and this action is a regularly scheduled event. Generally, overwash situations are associated with storms and can be tricky to predict. But scientists know that certain high tides at Duck Harbor will likely produce an overwash. That means they can plan to be in the field, and often research can be conducted in non-storm conditions. Access to the area is also easier than it was a few years ago. The saltwater intrusion killed trees and other plants behind the beach, <clears throat> and last year the seashore began a clearing and mulching project in the area that removed 80 acres of dead vegetation. The project, managed by Ducks Unlimited, is continuing this winter, with an additional 40 acres set to be cleared and mulched. Castagno said she was cheered to see salt marsh vegetation already appearing in the cleared and mulched area. Nature persists, she said. As long as Duck Harbor stays open, that's all you really need for salt marsh vegetation 
to grow. And there's also a picture on the Cape and Islands page today. The picture is of a beach with some fencing and a man walking his dog. The caption reads, New fencing stretches to the horizon on Tuesday, protecting the restored dune at Town Neck Beach in Sandwich as a morning dog walker heads along the shoreline. And now we'll go to a front-page Massachusetts state news story. That story is entitled, Oak Bluffs Wellfleet Housing Projects Boosted Among 26 Statewide, by Allison Kutznitz, State House News Service. As she waits for the legislature to dig into her detailed proposal to deal with the housing access and affordability crisis, Governor Maura Healey announced Monday that 26 housing projects across Massachusetts, including two supportive affordable housing developments for vulnerable residents in Lynn and Boston, are slated to receive financial assistance from the state. More than 1,900 housing units in 19 municipalities will be built or preserved through a jolt of funding from subsidies and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, which saw a $20 million increase in the tax package Healy signed in October. More than 90% of the units will be income-restricted affordable units, the governor said. Healy announced the slate of projects Monday at the Hyde Square Task Force in Jamaica Plain where state and local officials gathered to highlight a, quote, historic adaptive reuse project, end quote, for the adjacent Blessed Sacrament Church. The church, which has sat vacant for the last 20 years, will be redeveloped with 55 affordable housing units and a performance space. Each of these 26 developments is thoughtful, creative, and rooted in community, and each will provide someone, a senior, a family, a working person, with a comfort of home and the peace of mind that comes with financial security, Healy said. She added that the state was able to award funding to all applicants this year due to the expanded low-income housing tax credit. Policies intended to support families and children. Two days away from unveiling her fiscal 2025 budget among nearly flat revenue collections, Healy expressed appreciation for the legislature, which largely supported the $1 billion tax cut package. Beyond raising the low-income tax credit program cap 
from $40 million to $60 million. The package also increased the rental deduction cap and doubled the senior circuit, break it, circuit breaker tax credit, among other policies, to support families and children. These homes will also stand as a testament to the impact we can have when we take action as partners in government, Healy said. This time last year, we would not have been able to fund this many affordable homes. We would not have been able to issue awards for every strong application that came in. But last year, we got together. We said we were going to do this, and together our administration and the legislature made it happen. The projects are receiving nearly $95 million from the low-income tax credit, including about $50.4 million in federal tax credits and $44.5 million in state tax credits, a spokesperson from the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities said. They're also supported by about $138 million in subsidies from the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, the Housing and Stabilization Fund, and the Housing Innovation Fund, as well as other state and federal programs, the spokesperson said. Where are the projects that will be funded? The projects are located in Boston, Lynn, Athol, Brockton, Cambridge, Chelsea, Everett, Franklin, Holyoke, Northampton, Rockland, Oak Bluffs, Salem, Somerville, South Hadley, Springfield, Templeton, Wellfleet, and Worcester according to the governor's office. All of those communities have a, quote, dire need, end quote, for more affordable housing, said Housing and Livable Communities Secretary Ed Augustus. A quarter of the housing units will serve, quote, extremely low-income, end quote, residents, and people who are transitioning from homelessness, Augustus said. In Lynn, Augustus said, the Solomine House Project will create 150, excuse me, 150 affordable apartments for seniors and residents, excuse me, and residents will be able to access health care services at home thanks to a partnership with a nonprofit health care organization. 99 single-room apartments in a former hotel. A hotel in Boston, located on Morrissey Boulevard, will be converted into 99 single-room apartments meant for individuals who are chronically homeless. 
Augustus said residents will receive services, care coordination, and life skills training to help get them back on their feet. Supportive housing does more than provide a roof over someone's head. It provides them with essential wraparound services that help build a safe, stable future. And it is our best weapon in our battle against chronic homelessness, Augustus said. These two projects and the 24 others we celebrate today are all fantastic. We need resources to do even more. The secretary, echoing Hale, excuse me, Healy's remarks, used the press conference to highlight the administration's $4.1 billion housing bond bill proposal, which went before the Housing Committee for a hearing last week. The bill would support the creation or preservation of 70,000 housing units while implementing a string of housing policies, such as local option real estate transfer fees, administration officials say. Last week, in her State of the Commonwealth address, the governor said we need to go big on solving our housing challenges. The projects we celebrate today show Massachusetts is full of big ideas and bright solutions, Augustus said. And together, we can make Massachusetts a place where everyone can afford to live. Creating a Sense of Community Surveying the direct impact of the new housing grants, Augustus Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll took a brief stroll outside of the Blessed Sacrament Church, built in 1913 and purchased a decade ago by the Hyde Square Task Force, a nonprofit that supports Afro-Latin culture. Driscoll said she couldn't wait to return for a future ribbon-cutting ceremony. Project planners intend to repair and maintain the facade of the church while revamping the back of the building. We set out with this grand idea of creating an arts and cultural center, but soon realized that the project would require more than what we could do on our own. Selena Miranda, executive director of the Hyde Square Task Force, said, The funding support will enable residents to stay in the area and enjoy all the cultural richness and vibrancy this neighborhood has to offer, Miranda said. Historic assets are important for affordable housing initiatives, said Charlie Adams, regional vice president of development company Penrose, the task force's partner in refurbishing the church. They are symbols of the community, 
and they create a real sense of community, Adams said. It's always exciting and a great opportunity when they can no longer serve their original purpose that they can be converted to something else. And so we are particularly excited to be able to transform this beautiful asset, this historic asset for the community into a new generation of years to come. And now we'll go to our front page national news story, which is entitled Court. Feds can remove border wire. Decision a temporary win in fight with Texas. By Maureen Gropey and John Fritz, USA Today. The Supreme Court on Monday allowed the Biden administration to remove razor wire barriers that Texas erected along a 29-mile stretch of the Rio Grande meant to block migrants at the southwest border. The 5-4 to four ruling was a temporary victory for the Biden administration, giving the federal government the upper hand in its fight with Texas while the underlying lawsuit continues. Texas's political stunts, like placing razor wire near the border, simply make it harder and more dangerous for frontline personnel to do their jobs. White House spokesperson Angelo Fernandez Hernandez said in a statement Monday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, authorized the installation of the razor wire as part of a broader effort to deter migrants from crossing the Mexico border. That included a 29-mile stretch of the riverbank in Eagle Pass, much of which is private land. We're going to stop this story now and go to the obituaries. We'll, con- we'll finish reading this story at the conclusion of the obituaries. And next, in local, other local news, we will go to the obituaries. Maureen Ann Freeman. It is with great sadness the family of Maureen Ann Freeman of West Falmouth announces that she passed away on January 20, 2024. She was 75 years old. She was born in Wareham, Massachusetts, and was a lifetime resident of Falmouth. She graduated from Lawrence High School in 1967. She was the Director of Admissions at Gosnold Treatment Center, Falmouth, and a caretaker with Cape Abilities, Mashpee. She is survived by her husband, Ross Freeman, and children Ted Freeman of Hatchville, Todd Freeman of West Falmouth, and Jennifer Bono of Plymouth. Visitation will take place on Friday, January 26th, 
from 4 to 6 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 584 West Falmouth Highway, West Falmouth. A funeral mass will take place on Saturday, January 27th at 10 a.m. at St. Elizabeth Seton Church, 481 Quaker Road, North Falmouth, Massachusetts, 02556. For online guest book and directions, visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. And now we'll go back to reading the story that we were reading prior to the obituaries. That story is entitled, Court, Feds Can Remove Border Wire, Decision, A Temporary Win in Fight with Texas. Texas Razor Wire Holds Back Migrants and Border Patrol. But the Department of Homeland Security said federal law gives Border Patrol agents authority to access private land within 25 miles of the border, and that state laws cannot be used to stop those agents from carrying out their work. The agency told the Supreme Court that the razor wire is affecting migrants who have already entered the United States and making it harder for federal border agents to apprehend them. It is a foundational constitutional principle that the federal government is not bound by the laws or policies of any particular state in its enactment and implementation of federal law. U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prilligar told the court. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said Monday, the destruction of Texas's border barriers will not help enforce the law or keep Americans safe. The fight is not over, and I look forward to defending our state's sovereignty, Paxton said in a statement. Border Security and 2024 Election The fight over the barriers is part of a broader struggle between Abbott and President Joe Biden, a Democrat, over immigration. Biden is facing mounting pressure over the situation at the border, an issue his Republican challengers have been hammering on the campaign trail. Abbott also signed a law allowing state law enforcement officers to arrest, detain, and deport people suspected of illegally crossing the border. Siding with the administration were Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Amy Coney Barrett, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. Those opposed were Justices Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas. None gave a reason for their vote. 
The emergency appeal from Biden followed a ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that sided with Texas, barring the federal government from removing the razor wire barriers except in cases of emergency, such as if a migrant is, quote, drowning or suffering heat exhaustion, end quote. Migrant Deaths and Texas Barrier But the Justice Department told the Supreme Court this month that additional barriers the state erected had effectively prevented the Border Patrol from being able to determine if a migrant in that area needs emergency aid. Soon after that claim, a migrant woman and her two children died trying to cross the Rio Grande near a park in Eagle Pass, where state officials have blocked access to federal Border Patrol officers. The park contains a staging area for the Border Patrol and the boat ramp from which patrol boats are launched. While it's impossible to say what might have happened to the migrant if the Border Patrol had had its former access to the area, the federal officers would at least have been able to, quote, take any available steps, end quote, to help Mexico's rescue mission, the Justice Department told the Supreme Court last week. Texas authorities blamed the Biden administration for the three deaths, saying they happened because the U.S. has failed to properly enforce its immigration laws. They also disputed the federal government's account of what happened the night of the drownings when two other migrants were also in distress in the river. Texas lawyers said the federal government sought to blame the state, quote, for a tragedy that had already occurred before any federal official even contacted Texas, end quote. Our next front page national news story today is entitled New Hampshire Among Leaders in Voter Engagement by Rachel Looker and Javier Zaracina, USA Today. New Hampshire voters have a reputation for asking presidential candidates tough questions, flocking to campaign stops to challenge White House hopefuls, and for then following through at the polls. New Hampshire often leads the country when it comes to turnout rates of eligible voters in primaries and by a significant margin. In four of the last six presidential elections, New Hampshire landed in the number one spot for the highest primary turnout rate, according to data from the U.S. Elections Project. In 2008 and 2016, more than 52% of eligible New Hampshire voters voted in the primaries. 
Participation dropped to 31% in 2012, but that was by far the best in the nation, with Vermont a distant second at 21%. The 2020 primaries were an outlier, with 42% of eligible voters participating, third after Montana and Colorado. The fact that we've gotten over 50% turnout in a primary, some states don't get that in their presidential elections, said Andrew Smith, director of the University of New Hampshire's Survey Center. Why Granite Staters Come Out Smith, the co-author of The First Primary, New Hampshire's Outside Ro Outsize Role in Presidential Nominations, said there are multiple explanations for the state's major engagement in the primary process. First, there's its history and reputation as the first-in-the-nation contest. If you go to another state or another country and you tell people where you're from, they'll say, Oh yeah, that's where that primary is, Smith said. We're not really known for anything else. State law requires that New Hampshire's primary take place seven days or more before any other. The Secretary of State has the power to set the exact date. The law stemmed from tension and political exhaustion following the Vietnam War and Watergate, said sponsor Jim Splain. Residents feel the responsibility. For us, voting in the primaries is kind of like a holiday. There's an expectation that you just go vote on primary day, Smith said. Another reason. Granite State residents have higher incomes and education compared to other parts of the country. There's often a correlation between these factors and the likelihood of voting, Smith explained. Finally, throughout New Hampshire's history, there have been fewer restrictions on voting compared to other states, a tradition that carries on today. Undeclared voters who might be excluded from the primary process as independents in other areas, are welcomed to participate. They simply choose the party ballot they want, removing a common hurdle for voter participation. Counting the write-in votes Nobody expected high Democrat turnout this year. Their primary is not sanctioned by the Democratic National Committee, which prioritized more diverse states. Granite State Democrats went forward anyway, citing that state law. They urged partisans to write in President Joe Biden's name. 
any level of turnout, low or high, meant an arduous task of counting write-in votes. New Hampshire Secretary of State David Scanlon advised election officials ahead of time to release the results of the GOP primary first if manual vote counting slowed the process. However, Scanlon said they prepared for Democratic voters. The polling places have staffed up with extra help. It actually won't be all that different from the usual, he added. Close to one-third of the town's states, excuse me, of the state's towns still hand-count ballots. 100% turnout in at least one town. Granite staters love to go head-to-head with Iowa, and they can certainly brag about higher early race turnout. In 2020, 9% of eligible Iowans caucused, compared to 42% of New Hampshire voters participating in the primary. To be fair, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. The caucus format requires almost everyone to show up in person in the evening, limiting numbers. Drilling down, 20 to 30 percent of Iowa Republicans caucused in recent years, experts say. This year, the numbers were far lower. Just 15 percent of Iowa's registered Republicans around 110,298 people, showed up to pick their Republican nominee. Frigid cold and the remnants of snowstorms played a role. New Hampshire officials thought the 2024 primary could break state records. Scanlon predicted that 322,000 Republicans would turn out Tuesday. The weather gave a helping hand, above freezing and cloudy during the day. In 2016, 288,000 registered Republicans participated in the New Hampshire primaries. The earliest polling station continued the high turnout tradition. All six registered voters in the tiny resort town of Dixville Notch near the Canadian border, four Republicans, two undeclared, came out to their traditional midnight voting booth, as did a golden retriever puppy named Maxine. The voters were outnumbered more than 10 to 1 by reporters from every corner of the globe, not to mention by a pile of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley swept. It's what ought to happen in every community in the United States, where there is 100% participation, everybody votes said Les Auden, principal owner of the Balsams Resort. None of the six of us 
can complain about the outcome of the election because we've participated. And now we'll go to a national weather story. Storm System Brings Flash Floods and Freezing Rain by Anthony Robledo, Christopher Kahn, and Sybil Mays Osterman, USA Today Network. Areas across the country have been hit with dangerous weather conditions this week as thunderstorms spawned by moisture and instability from the Gulf of Mexico continue to impact the lower Mississippi Valley and parts of the southern United States. The National Weather Service warns that four to eight inches of rain could cause flash floods this week in Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and the northwest Gulf Coast into the Mid-South. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee are expected to be hardest hit by rain this week. Damaging thunderstorms along the Gulf Coast could cause wind gusts as high as 70 miles an hour, reports AccuWeather. Severe flash floods wreaked havoc on morning commutes in San Diego County on Monday, after the torrential rains closed down roads and shut off power. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria declared a state of emergency after the National Weather Service warned flash flooding could continue until 9 p.m. that night. Videos posted to social media showed cars washed away as roads turned to rivers. City residents and rescuers used kayaks and paddleboards to bring those trapped to safety. The San Diego River rose more than six feet in less than 12 hours, according to the United States Geological Survey, and the San Diego International Airport reported it had reached a tie for the fifth rainiest day on record, with 2.7 inches of water. The National Weather Service also placed Los Angeles County and parts of southern and central Texas under a flood warning following the heavy downpours. Meanwhile, freezing rain is expected to bring hazardous, icy travel conditions to areas across the Midwest, lower Great Lakes, and northeast today as a series of storm systems across large areas of the central and eastern United States brings mild temperatures compared with last week's pattern of Arctic air, according to the Weather Service. Accumulating snowfall is likely, especially in parts of lower Michigan and southwest New York, according to the Weather Service which also forecast unsettled weather to be ongoing through the middle of the week in the Ohio Valley and large areas of the south. 
Residents in Memphis, Tennessee, on Monday, spent a fourth day boiling water as repair crews continued to fix broken pipes amid winter storms that have been blamed for dozens of deaths across the United States. The city's water company, Memphis Light, Gas, and Water, or MLGW, had expanded its boil water notice on Friday to the more than 600,000 people it serves after a number of water main breaks, creating a risk of harmful bacteria contaminating the water supply. The advisory came amid a stretch of freezing temperatures and dropping water pressure for many Memphis and Shelby County residents. On Monday morning, the city-owned utility lifted its water conservation request for all customers after MLGW said water pressures across the city are in the process of returning to normal. But the Boyle Advisory remained in effect. Our next national news story is entitled, Navy Identifies Two Seals Declared Dead. We're on a mission to seize Iranian-made weapons. By Tao Nguyen, USA Today. The U.S. Navy has identified the two seals lost in the Arabian Sea during a nighttime mission to board and seize an unflagged boat carrying illegal Iranian-made weapons to Yemen. The U.S. Central Command announced the end of its 10-day exhaustive search and rescue operation for the missing seals. The operation involved ships and aircraft from the United States, Japan, and Spain, with assistance from the Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanographic Center, the U.S. Coast Guard Atlantic Area Command, and the University of California, San Diego's Scripps Institute of Oceanography, continuously searching more than 21,000 square miles. The search, the Central Command said Sunday, was changed to a recovery operation, and the two sailors were presumed deceased. The two SEALs were on an interdiction mission on January 11th, when one of them fell off a ship after high waves hit the vessel, prompting the other SEAL to go after him to attempt a rescue, according to officials. The missing SEALs were identified Monday as Navy Special Warfare Officer First Class Christopher J. Chambers, age 37, and Navy Special Warfare Operator Second Class Nathan Gage Ingram, age 27, who both served with a U.S. West Coast-based SEAL team. 
we extend our condolences to Chris and Gage's families, friends, and teammates during this incredibly challenging time. They were exceptional warriors, cherished teammates, and dear friends to many within the Naval Special Warfare community. Captain Blake L. Cheney, Commander, Naval Special Warfare Group 1, said in a statement. Chris and Gage selflessly served their country with unwavering professionalism and exceptional capabilities, Cheney added. This loss is devastating for NSW, our families, the special operations community, and across the nation. Chambers of Maryland enlisted in the Navy in 2012 and graduated from SEAL training in 2014, the Navy said. Some of his awards and decorations include the Navy slash Marine Corps Achievement Medal with Combat C, three Navy slash Marine Corps Achievement Medals, Army Achievement Medal, and Combat Action Ribbon. Ingram of Texas enlisted in 2019 and graduated from SEAL training in 2021, according to the Navy. His awards and decorations include various personal and unit awards. Jill and I are mourning the tragic death of two of America's finest, Navy SEALs who were lost at sea while executing a mission off the coast of East Africa last week, President Joe Biden said in a statement Monday. These SEALs represented the very best of our country, pledging their lives to protect their fellow Americans. Our hearts go out to the family members, loved ones, friends, and shipmates who are grieving for these two brave Americans. This has been Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, January 24th. I hope you all have a wonderful day.